expats, foreigners can leave. And the people who live there can't. Right. And you have doctors and nurses and people who do die in the line of fire, who, who are killed uh, as they are trying to help people. They can't leave. They're, they're there. These are their communities and their lives. And the fact that they would ever come under attack or be targeted for what they're doing is appalling. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was friend of the show, Rick Neal, a well-known member of the Central Ohio Progressive Community who we've had on the show in the past to discuss domestic policy and politics. But today, we're talking about his work in humanitarian relief. It's been a hell of a few weeks on the heels of an election of major consequence here in Ohio, but globally, things continue to roil. There's the ongoing situation in Ukraine, of course, and now a devastating humanitarian crisis in Gaza in the wake of the attacks by Hamas on Israel on October 7th. It feels like the world just keeps getting darker and darker. Part of that conflict, of course, is a situation directly at the center of this show's focus on healthcare and medicine, namely the active destruction of and combat taking place in and around hospitals in Gaza. We're not going to focus much on Gaza today, but what we are going to do is talk with Rick about what he's learned from the humanitarian work he's done in the past, much of it in the wake of either war or natural disasters, like the one that recently brought him back to Morocco, where years ago he worked in the Peace Corps. And for every crisis that gets our attention here in Ohio, there are many more that, as Rick tells us, are largely forgotten. I also want to note that one reason I'm doing this episode at this time is that sometimes life here in Ohio can shrink our worldview. Think of all those months leading up to the issue one vote in November. Think about the millions of dollars we wasted fending off an anti-democratic constitutional amendment back in August. And yet there's a big world out there and one that Ohioans like Rick care a lot about and make a difference in. War, of course, is a humanitarian disaster in its own right, but we also have choices to make as we contribute to the social and political discourse around us. It sometimes feels like we just can't bring ourselves to rise above the fray, especially on social media, and focus on caring for the world around us. Okay, here's my conversation with Rick Neal. We last had you on the show back in 2020 during the presidential election when you were working to get Joe Biden elected. Feels like uh, you know both yesterday and uh, a decade ago. <laughs> Many listeners will also remember that you ran for Congress in 2018. So you've been actively involved in state and national politics for for a long time. But I noticed, and I remember when I first heard about you, throughout those efforts, you've always talked about and highlighted your passion for humanitarian relief work and. And, and you've always had a very global perspective, you know, tied those things together. So just to get the listeners up to speed, let, let's start by getting a little bit of a snapshot of your work in this area. I know that's like a long, expansive question going back to youth or whatever, but, you know, just to kind of understand how you came to this work and, and what it's meant to you. For sure. No, Dan, thank you very much. It's, this is very cool. I, uh, I went to Peace Corps right out of college um, and served for five years in Morocco, in North Africa, and that's really what got me on my international career. I was a teacher for two years, and that was the hardest thing I've ever done, <laughs> and I, I got into public health after that. And, you know, the, the Peace Corps ethos of, of go where the need is greatest uh, really sort of drove me uh, into public health. Uh, I got a, a master's in public health in North Carolina, always with the intention of heading back overseas to, to build a career in humanitarian relief and and public health work. And so I did that for seven years. I worked with various nonprofits in Southeast Asia and Central Asia and uh, Central Africa. 
and uh, went from running small programs to <laughs> my my last job in Eastern Congo was was running a, a multifaceted aid program for uh, displaced people uh, there. And even after I came back to the United States in 2004, I got a, a second master's in international relations so that I could work on the political side of uh, of displacement and humanitarian affairs and, and worked as a humanitarian advocate um, in D.C. So it was a great career. To give us a visual to kind of personalize this a little bit, when you think back to this part of your life, what are one or two really meaningful experiences where you kind of just like keep coming back and you remember, you know, a face, a moment? I mean, what's something that really kind of visualizes that for you? Yeah, there was a in the um, I'm trying to think of the timing in the late uh, late '90s, early 2000s. There was a pretty serious humanitarian crisis in the very small Central African nation of Burundi. Um, it, it sort of mirrored in a way the 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 uh, much much worse genocide and humanitarian crisis in Rwanda in the mid '90s. Um, but the the government was uh, fighting against uh, rebel groups, and so they they forcibly displaced about 350,000 uh, people in the hills surrounding the capital as a way to try to control the situation and go after the rebel groups. But it was also to to terrorize the population. And, you know, that was a, that was a very, there was an acute humanitarian crisis. Suddenly hundreds of thousands of people found themselves in these, these uh, makeshift camps uh, with no water, uh, no access to sanitation. And I was there with the, the British NGO, the British nonprofit Oxfam. And uh, we went in and we did some great projects around water supply and, and sanitation and hygiene promotion. But this was a humanitarian rights catastrophe. And so... Uh, there was one group that we worked with where suddenly my staff came back and said, hey, you know, Judith uh, and, um, and this other guy, their, uh, their uh, son was killed in a military operation. Um, so the, the camp is sort of um, in, in an uproar. And I had a chance to bring them into the Capitol to talk to a human rights group. Of, and there was a military guy sitting there, too. And it was... It was really, really great to be able to bring people in from these camps. Um, and I remember there was an elevator in the building where we, we were going. And I don't think Judith and the, the guy had ever been in an elevator, frankly. Um, and even though they just lived a few miles away from the Capitol, it was fantastic to be able to have her. She was so courageous. It was crazy. She went in there and just told the story of what happened to her son. And the military guy was sitting right across from her, and he was not happy. And the local authorities were not very happy with me afterwards. So it was a risk for me and my organization, too. But they had to hear it. And I, I will never forget her and how courageous she was. It seems like truth-telling is a huge piece of you know, that, that underlies this kind of work just being able to tell the stories. If you can get people to listen to the stories, then they start to think about the issues. But our society, and I'm guessing many societies, does a fantastic job just kind of keeping the stories from ever coming to the surface. So I confess that you know I wanted to talk with you at this time. I mean, I had read that you um, had gone over to Morocco recently, but we also just had these elections. And when I think about... I mean, there's so many important issues here in Ohio right now. There's so many important issues in the United States. But also our world can feel really small sometimes. And, and that's been my experience traveling. It's one of the reasons why I tell my medical students, like, if you possibly can, go places and don't just get on a cruise ship. Like, go, you know, go and stumble around and figure your way through and, and, and talk to people. 
so this was kind of a, a strategy on my part with the with with the show of seeing if we could open up the conversation a little bit. Let's turn to Morocco though first. You know, just specifically. So you were just over there. The horrible earthquake in September. Um, what's the status of things there, and what was it like being back? And you know, what what can you tell us about it? Thanks. Right. So the, there was this uh, bad earthquake in Morocco on September eighth, and I had lived there for five years as a Peace Corps volunteer. My last year in a village very similar to uh, the area most affected by the earthquake, and so I, I really, <laughs> I really felt drawn to go over there. I was concerned that there were some villages very, very close to the epicenter. I wasn't seeing anything on them about, you know, online or in the news. And so I was worried that they weren't getting the attention they needed. And I was pretty sure that I would be able to find a way to get up into them because of my familiarity uh, with the country. And and so that's, it was just a week. Um, you know, I did get out to those villages closest to the epicenter, was able to document what was going on. Um, you know, the the conditions in a in a relatively contained area, luckily, are quite bad. And the the issue was about, you know, here winter is approaching, um, houses are damaged, people aren't living in them. As as the snow falls and the rain falls, you know, the housing, the their houses are going to deteriorate further if they're not repaired quickly. So it's going to be a very, very tough winter for the people up in the mountains. And I've just been really concerned about that. I think, you know, the government moved quite quickly to send out right after I was there, government assessment teams swarmed the area. And I heard from uh, colleagues and other friends who were out there doing the same thing I was, that the, you know, the assessment teams were everywhere and they came up with a national reconstruction plan. So fingers crossed, you know, money's going to flow out there and people are going to be able to get their houses repaired. You know, in political science, we, we do these kind of um, issue-focused studies to show that the, the attention span of most people is pretty limited, right? Well, get really excited about helping a certain set of people for a little bit of time and money flows. And then it kind of like we're on to the next thing. Yeah. When you think about all the things going on in the world, it's overwhelming because mm-hmm. there's a rolling catastrophe and it kind of like, even the things that we're not thinking about are still going on. And, in in, in, you know, absolutely. So, so how do you think about the focus we bring to, like, how do you sustain interest in helping a people? It has to do with with the interest of that particular community or even that per, that person. I mean, certainly as someone who worked in humanitarian relief, you know, you can't be everywhere, you can't go everywhere, and so it, it has to do with timing and 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 what you're drawn to. You know, there's a lot of uh, religious communities, a lot of church groups in the United States that are engaged in mission work or engaged in charitable giving to places all over the world. And, you know, that's those and sometimes, you know, those places suffer catastrophe. There is a spirit of generosity and spirit of of a sort of expansiveness in American culture. And, you know, working with that, People have those connections. I mean, even like I mentioned before we started recording, my great-grandparents were missionaries in China. Maybe people grew up with stories like that in their families. Um, so you can, I think you can often find a way in. Um, and people's hearts are, are open to helping. We see that again and again and again. But for every country or region whose plight kind of fits into our national politics, there are many, many more crises that we don't even really talk about very much. And you told me you call these or think of these as forgotten medical emergencies or something like that. Um, So, you know, for example, the situation in Afghanistan remains terrible, right? The Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, like there are about 
30 million people who are in grave danger in that mm-hmm. region alone. So what do you think about when you think about why certain groups become a focus for us? I mean, is, is race the big difference here? Is religion the key? Like, is it a bunch of different variables? Like, what What is it that successfully puts something on our radar screen so we can actually contribute meaningfully to the world? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, a lot of it has to do with timing. You know, if there's if there's nothing else really going on in the news, um, or if there's something particularly easy to grasp, I mean, I, I I have to admit the and I hate to for this to sound so clinical, but the framing and the approach to Russia's invasion in 2022 of Ukraine, you know, was quite like all the pieces sort of fell into place. Um, the way the administration framed it, the way the media framed it, it was a fairly easy. Um, uh, situation to get your head around, uh, and it, and it was very compelling. And you know, and I have to say, I think the Ukrainian government itself did an excellent job of framing things and and um, explaining what was happening. Uh, not just Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian civil society, a lot of people. Um, whereas, you know, there's some very difficult ones. I mean, let let's take a very very hidden one. I mean, we're not even like not to not even mention what's happened, what's been happening for decades in North Korea. You know, a, a slave state, totally closed off. The humanitarian situation there is, is hard to imagine. But we, it is so closed off that you really have to be a person that focuses on that part of the world, on North Korea, to, to understand it. And it just doesn't get any play because, I mean, there's, there's almost nothing you can do about it. Even one step up from that, the the Uyghur genocide in China. I mean, you know, that's not something that you're going to hear a lot about because China is a, is a strategic, I don't want to say partner, but, you know, a part of superpower strategic relationships. But what the Chinese government has done against the Muslim Uyghurs in Western China is appalling. Uh, but it it doesn't fit very well we and i mean i i personally i don't know if i personally see a pattern of human rights abuses against various muslim populations around the world i mean the uyghurs in western china the rohingya in burma um you know certainly what's been going on in yemen mm-hmm. and syria and you know the, the the u.s invasion of iraq and and what happened what's been happening there i mean it they they are terrible humanitarian situations, but sometimes I wonder if because these are Muslim populations that they just don't get as much attention. And it's um, it, and for someone who spent five years in in Morocco, it's distressing. I mean, certainly you know Vladimir Zelensky became a household name, right? And, Amazing, yeah. and he's an actor. I mean, he, the guy has just exquisite skills in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. So that kind of that piece takes us pretty far. It also fit into existing geopolitical narratives, right? So when we think about North Korea, you know, they're kind of, you mentioned that we just don't know. There's not a lot of information flowing, Mm. but also it just doesn't, it doesn't get framed as a humanitarian crisis. It gets framed more as a nuclear threat or something like that. President Biden was just with President Xi just last night. We're talking on, on Thursday here. Um, Obviously, to bring up situations, you know, within China it comes with a diplomatic or a political kind of cost. So sometimes there are things that presidents and others stay away from. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they raise them kind of behind the scenes. 
And then there are the ones that we feel more comfortable just talking about, like all the focus that we have on the Israeli Gaza situation. That holds a different kind of place in our absolutely. Yeah, it's horrific. No, absolutely. And you know, just to just to finish that thought about forgotten humanitarian yeah. crises. I mean, the the group that I think comes out with that regularly is uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, comes out every year uh, with their list. Um, and it's a very helpful tool for the humanitarian community. It helped us you know, focus our efforts and, and, and remind ourselves and policymakers and funders about you know, where, where we need to be, where we can't forget it. We, we shouldn't forget it. And, you know, I mentioned a lot of places like um, Syria and Yemen, which remain really intractable and, and, and appalling humanitarian crises, but also then in Central Africa. I mean, the situation in Eastern Congo has been dire for years. And uh, often it's so, and I spent a lot of time there, and it, you know, it's so intractable and complicated uh, that it, it's easy to just, sort of put it on the back burner, which is too bad. Does having the imprimatur of a group like Doctors Without Borders help kind of create a more of an objective index of where help is needed? I mean, somebody who's staying out of the geopolitics mm. and just simply looking at regions and saying, these people need help of this kind, or here's something that you're not thinking about. How important is it to have that kind of objective organization that tries to rise above the geopolitical dynamics. Oh, it's very important and it, it, because this is how funding works. And I found as an advocate, as a humanitarian advocate, the, the, the funding is, it, it's very important, but it's relatively small. Like in the larger picture, I think, you know, a lot of Americans, I've seen survey data that say, you know, Americans think this huge percentage of, of, the U.S. budget goes to foreign assistance when it's actually minuscule, and uh, uh, you know even a small amount of money though goes a long way. So the, these these pots of money are are very important to effective humanitarian response, but they're not very large. And so advocacy like what uh, MSF does or what my organization, the one that I used to work for, Refugees International, you know, they're this objective voice saying we we're in the field, we see what's going on. You know, this is where the needs are. That can move. Uh, staffers and uh, legislators to make sure that certain money is in budgets, and also people in you know the State Department or the Department of Defense that are that are uh, directing and, and programming uh, humanitarian money, and then the and not just them, but that's also then the European Union, which is a big donor, the UN agencies, which are big donors, um, and then the big major nonprofits that work in the field. I mean, it, it all that that kind of advocacy can have a huge impact and keep money flowing where it needs to. So yeah, it's very useful. I'm glad you made that point about money because obviously donating money and being smart with where we donate money is, is an important part of this. But it seems like, and again, I'm looking at Doctors Without Borders, but I'm guessing Oxfam and Refugees International, all these groups have a similar problem, which is they really need the geopolitical ability to do their jobs, right? Be, to be safe. You know, I mean, we, we're talking right now where there's all this discussion, rightfully so, about the Al-Shifa hospital in, in Gaza, a hospital being at the center of any conflict. And this happens around the world. And I wonder if you could speak to that for a moment. I mean, have you have you seen some situations where you've been able to work through um, barriers to getting people care? Like, for example, just keeping medical facilities accessible or keeping water systems intact, right? Because you're more on the public health side of things. 
Can you talk a little bit about the importance of kind of keeping systems running so that you can actually do the work? Because even if you have you know endless amounts of money, it doesn't really matter if the society's basic systems aren't functioning. For sure. No, it's, it, that's a big on-the-ground challenge of, of humanitarian action. And it depends on good relationships with local authorities, with different sides in the conflict. Keeping operations going, obviously, is, is key. So yeah, it's, it's not just money, but it is those relationships so that you can keep going. It gets very, very difficult when the conflict becomes bigger, uh, especially when, it's, uh, when superpowers are involved. <laughs> That gets very tricky, and you really have to hand it to organizations like the International Committee of the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders that strive very hard to provide impartial humanitarian assistance. And, and what this leads to is you know, this idea of humanitarian imperatives and what drives not just what drives humanitarians to work, but the, the principles that guide them. And you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this lately because of what's happening in Gaza and humanitarian imperatives of protecting civilians and uh, protecting places that care for civilians. And that once, you know, a, a, a longstanding sort of rule of war and, and humanitarian rules, that once a, once a combatant is wounded, they are, they are off, you know, they are not a target anymore. These are basic rules that really, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that's so shocking about what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. Um, just this blatant disregard across the board. Uh, for civilians and for places that care for civilians, and it's uh, you know as, yeah, it's a humanitarian. It's very disturbing, and and for for people on the ground, it's it's devastating. It it for for folks who are trying to work, you end up working in some really difficult and and awful situations, and it, it can be um, yeah, you just you <laughs> you really have to do everything you can to to try to get the. Um, warring parties to to try to respect those rules and that's just personal on you know on the ground in your face advocacy there must be some line where you say we functionally can't do our work or we can't keep anybody safe within our operation that must be one of the hardest things you have to deal with it's uh, yes uh, being being evacuated from a from a place where you're working is <laughs> Is that it's happened to me a couple of times? Never because the the danger was very extreme, uh, but just because it that was the decision that was made. That le- having to leave your post, having to leave your work, is is always um, obviously very upsetting. There, you know, and there's some very there's something just incredibly courageous people, but n- not just. Let's not say that those are you know just the expatriates. I mean, the their expats, foreigners can leave. And the people who live there can't. Right. And you have doctors and nurses and uh, people who do die in the line of fire, who, who are killed uh, as they are trying to help people. They can't leave. They're, they're there. Um, and this, this is their, these are their communities and their lives. And the fact that they would ever come under attack or be targeted uh, for what they're doing is, uh, is appalling. So I'm hoping that in doing this episode today, listeners will do some reading, you know, do a little Googling, finding out more about these um, situations around the world and also to the students who listen. Can you put in, um, I guess a plug is the wrong word, but can you identify a couple of areas around the world that you think fit into this category of forgotten 
that you've talked about that we should really be talking about more? Yeah, I wish I were better informed. Um, you know, life in life in the U.S. is is busy, and it is it is hard to to remember. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm lucky that I have a, a very close Peace Corps buddy who's now the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society, and Sam does you know amazing uh, work year after day after day, year after year. Um, in some really difficult and tragic situations in Syria, obviously, you know. And so I'm lucky Dave keeps me sort of informed or I follow along with him, right? Um, you know, the beyond beyond what's happening right now in, in, in Gaza, um, the situation in Syria and, and Yemen both, I think, remains really dire. Um, you mentioned Afghanistan, a uh, very challenging place to work, given that the Taliban control the country now. And, and how do you work with with Taliban authorities? Um, I think, uh, and, I, and I mentioned uh, Eastern Congo, and as, as from what I know, uh, Eastern Congo remains a, a difficult and long-term humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, it's... It, What's interesting when you think about humanitarian work, though, uh, just to to talk about sort of the practicalities of it, there's a few phases, right? I mean, there's an acute humanitarian crisis. That's what we have going on right now in Gaza. You, you sometimes you can't even get in. Local folks who live there are are left on their own. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, it's a very acute situation. You know, those are very intense. That's sort of like sort of the the movie kind of humanitarian situation, right? And that draws certain kinds of people who are very who have that kind of experience you know uh, trauma doctors um, and nurses they that's their field um, war doctors and and nurses they are skilled and and understand the kind of uh, you know the kind of context the kind of situation but at some point humanitarian crises turn into long-term crises uh, where you might have you know hundreds of thousands of people in camps, the security situation is stable, um, or as stable as it can be, um, and that's a different kind of you know environment. And you have people who are drawn to help, people who are drawn to live overseas. Um, you know, I'm talking about expats now um, who come in uh, from the outside, perhaps for a short uh, uh, a contract at six weeks, or maybe for for much longer. It, there, there's almost a serendipitous aspect to humanitarian relief. I mean, if you if you're drawn to it, you might do something in your life to prepare for it. I went and got a, a master's degree in public health, uh, but I didn't do that to stay in America. I did that to to go back overseas. Um, a, a close friend of mine was drawn. You know, she uh, this this re- really amazing uh, French lady uh, was was drawn to. Um, drawn to humanitarian relief. And so she she literally changed her life and, and studied to be a nurse just so that she could join MSF, Doctors Without Borders, and go overseas. And she's, she's had an incredible, incredible career in yeah. humanitarian response, helping, you know, helping hundreds of thousands of people across the world. So it has to, it has to do with that kind of affinity. And, but then where you end up is just, it's just where, things happen. You don't always have control over it. Um, and it's, it, you know, I think people feel like, oh, I have to go everywhere. I have to try to help everybody. And no, you, you go where you can, you do what you can. And it's, as long as you remember why you're there, you know, you're there to help people, you're there to build capacity uh, so that when, you know, you leave things continue or, and, and you have to be very humble about what you can actually achieve. 
you know, one of the things that I've reflected on a lot in my life and would love to just hear your take on is the experience of coming home. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're lucky you get to come home and you come home to your family and we live here in central Ohio. And, and I wonder as you reflect on, again, as I started with, uh, you know, the work you do here, we talk all the time, for example, about our dysfunctional state legislature on this, you know, and the frustrations we have, you know, we have, uh, you know, lead service lines and we have all manner of environmental and other challenges here in Ohio and massive health disparities and outcomes, you know, how do you put the pieces together where you come home and then you look at Ohio and you say, I mean, what do you say? Well, again, if so, if, if, if people are, that's a great example of where here you might have someone drawn to help, drawn to service, called to service, if you will, but they, they can't go to Eastern Congo. They can't go to Syria. Um, or they don't want to, you know, or they, and they've got family and kids here, but they, they are drawn to service. It, the same, <laughs> the same principles, the uh, same apply. Uh, so you're, you know, drawn to serve. If you've, you, you know, what you don't want to do is you, you don't want to just think like, oh, I'm going to parachute into this poor community, or I'm going to parachute into this poor neighborhood in my city, and uh, and help them and save them. Well, no. Um, you know, you approach with that same humility of I, I'm drawn to service. That doesn't mean that they're obligated to accept it. <laughs> uh, that I, it, it, it's on me to prepare. It's on me to uh, be ready. To, it's on me to have something to, that might be useful um, to, to offer. Um, it's, it's on me to have an open heart and an open mind so that if I say, if I approach and I say, hey, I, I want to help, and they say, well, we don't need your help, that, that, that that's okay. Or if you, you know, or you, um, you go in knowing that there's already that that the 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 approach that I love to talk about and it's it can be hard to do um, is you go in and and you f- if you have resources right or and, you, and you've got this this the right mindset about um, supporting local action you go in and and there's always someone who is on it there's always someone in the community no matter what community you're going to work with who is just already doing all this stuff we all know them right they're amazing they're dynamic. They've really got it going on. It is, so, it is such an amazing experience to, to connect with that person. If you're someone who has something to offer, like I said, resources or, or a certain kind of expertise, you can do amazing things uh, together. But the community might already have everything going on, and maybe what they need is some funding or something else. You, you just have to, you have to be very careful you know, not to come in and, and, and impose yourself or, or feel like, you know, you're you're the one who's going to turn things around and save things because um, it's just that's just kind of um, arrogant. You're talking about humility at a basic level too. Going in and finding out how can I help, how can I support the work you're doing. What do you need instead of telling people what they need? And it can and you know and and I think this is I I always thought that this applies to to politics and policy as well. Um, and I always sort of wondered. Um, what it would be like, <laughs> you know, if my campaign for Congress had been successful or if I ever hold elected office, you know, what it would be like to bring some of these uh, community uh, 
these these principles of of community action and even humanitarian action of going where the need is greatest and bringing that to policy um, and uh, bringing that to political work. Your frame tends to be that of public health, as we've talked yes. about, right? We have a lot of public health people who listen to this show. We also have a lot of medical practitioners, uh, healthcare professionals, and also professionals in training. I guess I'd like to ask you to give me your best pitch to them to get involved in this work. Uh, and, and I will say, I hear a lot of folks uh, who say, that just seems incredibly distant, right? It seems like, you know, and there, it's it's a problem that uh, many people simply don't feel comfortable being out of their the comfort zone uh, right. of life here in Ohio. And I mentioned the cruise ship thing before. So so how do you make that transition? Do you work with existing people who are doing this work and, and they can kind of like help people ease into it and learn how it's done? And what's your pitch for them doing the work in general? I think, I mean, I think in the best situation, you have a person who's, who's drawn to it, drawn to service, you know, drawn to living overseas, helping in, in, a, in some very different cultural environments and some very uh, compelling humanitarian situations. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll, I, I, I'll give a pitch to doctors, I, I think, or, or, or I guess what I should say, some, I think, um, one of the entree, one of the ways to get into it is, for example, to contact uh, Doctors uh, Doctors Without Borders USA. Um, you know, they're based in New York, and they have a roster of of clinicians, of of people with clinical skills and other skills who are who would be willing to deploy, who would be willing to go out for sometimes very short periods, um, and. Uh, you know, they again. They're going to be looking for people with, for example, trauma experience. That's pretty important in in some of these areas. Um, and you just jump in uh, if if that if you're drawn to it, and if you um, you know if you're willing to try, and and people will find out if it's a good fit for them or not. It can be very intense. Um, it can be it can be very boring. Uh, it, you know, these are not these are remote isolated places um security can be nothing or it can be terrifying <laughs> mm. uh, you know and it, it's you live in very close quarters sometimes in very uh not so nice living conditions and that can be challenging for a lot of people but uh you know you're out there and you uh, and and sometimes there is a desperate need uh for for help um, and for your skills and for your training. Um, and especially, especially if you have a heart for uh, strengthening capacity that exists and for working closely uh, with people and doing everything you can to get beyond cultural and linguistic barriers um, to learn from each other. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And you, you know, I think I would encourage people to do it. Um, I'm not talking about humanitarian tourism. Um, you know, I'm not talking about, about that kind of thing and talking about really looking into it. I mean, there's, there's tons of people who have the experience. You talk, make sure that, that you have the, that you're going for the right reasons that you have the right mindset. Um, but try it out. Uh, and if there's, you know, if there's, I, I'll, I'll say, I'll make my plug for Peace Corps. Um, I think Peace Corps is amazing. I had an excellent experience. Not everybody does. Um, but it's a great way to, uh, get experience, uh, working and living in different cultures. And what's great about Peace Corps, just to, to make that plug uh, for people, not just coming out of college, 
But older volunteers who have who have work and life experience are incredibly valuable and very welcomed in communities because of their experience. Um, you know, it's it's two years of a of a almost a very pure cultural experience where you're where a lot of your job is to understand the culture and learn the language and integrate yourself into the community so that you can better have that. Uh, those relationships of support and capacity building, you know, that go both ways. Um, so Peace Corps is a great, also a great entree. Great. Plug accepted. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, like anything, you know, if security is important, safety and comfort, and th- these are, these are important, but I think what I'm also hearing here is, and this has been my experience in my life, there's something to be said for jumping in mm. and for trusting your judgment and, and trusting the people around you and the systems around you. Uh, so uh, not overthinking is, is important. And I think that to some degree, this kind of work will always feel a little bit like jumping in. Absolutely. Um, you know, run, run towards the fire. Uh, if you're, if you're drawn to, and yeah, jump in, it, it will, um, it will work out. Uh, you know, you, you, you touched on an important point too, though, really odd thing about being an expat, uh, being an aid worker is that you, even though you don't always want to, you can always be taken out. You can, you know, almost always leave. And that, so there's, there's, there's backstops. I, the security, you know, security stuff, I didn't, when I started this work, I didn't know anything about security, but I got very, I was lucky to have great mentors. And that French lady, my friend, Denny, who uh, I talked about earlier, you know, she was, she taught me a lot about security and about how to operate in some, odd and, and insecure environments. It, it, it's a very straightforward uh, kind of thing uh, to, to get a feel for the security situation and how you can operate within. And like you said, you're not out there on your own. I mean, you're part of this bigger structure. And the, and the living conditions are the living conditions. I mean, come on, uh, you can suck it up. <laughs> right. You know, you're out there to help people. And, and it's interesting. I, yeah, I definitely say jump in. Yeah, try it out. And, uh, but just keep that Keep those humanitarian principles in mind. Keep the keep the capacity building approach um, in mind. Stay humble, uh, and it it can be amazing. Great. Well, Rick, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for doing it, and uh, thanks for the work you've done. And thanks, Dan. It's great to talk about. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received social media and production support from Nathaniel Powell. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve the show. Consider chipping in just a few bucks on our Patreon site, which is linked from prognosisohio.com. But even if you aren't able to do that, just give us a nice rating on your podcast app and tell your friends about us. It's free to do, and that really helps. Okay, be well, and thanks for listening.